The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello, and welcome to Pseudo-Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, and law. I am Abraham Litwin Logan, and today we will be discussing an interesting thought experiment inspired by a monumental British election result. The thought experiment is as follows. There is a significant amount of evidence that suggests that candidate A, who we will refer to as Andy, is racist. Nevertheless, you as an individual agree with 90% of Andy's policies. Running against Andy is candidate B, who we will refer to as Bob. There is no evidence of Bob having similar discriminatory feelings as Andy. However, you, as the individual, only agree with 10% of Bob's proposed policies. Who should you vote for? Here with me to discuss this thought experiment, amongst other things, is Harish Baskar. How's it going? It's going good. Thank you, Abe. Also here with us is Michael Sia. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So let's get right to it. Harish, let's start with you. Why are we discussing this, and how does it relate to the UK general election? I think what we have to focus on is um, Jeremy Corbyn's defeat. And a lot of prominent Labour politicians pointed to Corbyn's long-standing association with anti-Semitic leaders. Um, recently, just before the elections commenced, the Jewish Labour movement uh, concluded, I mean, the Jewish Labour movement's leader, Michael, Mike Katz, concluded that Jeremy Corbyn is not fit to be Prime Minister and that his party was failing Jewish members and tolerating anti-Semitism. Um, a Guardian report found uh, that there were leaked reports of an inquiry where 70 sworn testimonies from current and ex-party staffers alleging um, not only being participating in anti-Semitic activities but also condoning anti-Semitism. So this also can be seen in light with other recent developments around the world. I think we're going to be using Modi, uh, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, and a Bolsonaro, the current President of Brazil, as an example. Um, Modi's has a lot of popular policies, um, such as demonetization. We, we shan't discuss the effects, but at the time it was popular. Um, the proposal to create a unified goods and services tax that would replace individual state tax policies, to create a common Indian market, um, also creating a Make in India program to incentivize manufacturing. And these aren't ideas that are that are unpopular. These are ideas that are popular, that would appeal to a broad base of support. Yet Modi's been known um, historically for his association with anti-Muslim movements, both in Gujarat and otherwise. Um, his party has been criticised with the new citizenship bill that seems to discriminate against Muslim minorities. Um, he's also been associated with a lot of increasing rates of cow vigilantism, which is where um, right-wing Hindu nationalists go out and basically uh, either kill or seriously injure Muslims who, are, who they have suspected to be involved in eating beef which seems like a un- very cruel offence, doesn't it? And kind of shocks you. Mm-hmm. Um, Bolsonaro is another example. He's had a history of homophobia, even though he's recently dissociated himself from that um, sort of line of reasoning. Um, but his policies are se- seem to be fairly popular too. Um, he's proposed reducing state intervention. Um, this was early on in his manifesto, even though he stepped back. So we're looking at it retrospectively, of course. 
but um, him pointing out that Petrobras, for example, should sell a substantial portion of its refining, retail, transportation, and other activities where it has market power to promote competition. These are ideas that aren't foreign, and these are ideas that might appeal to an individual voter. So we want to consider whether, in spite of what politicians may feel personally, should we still vote for them based on their policies. So the purpose of mentioning these various leaders around the world is essentially to visualize this thought experiment in action. Because it is a very real possibility that voters are faced with questions like outlined in the thought experiment, isn't it? Yeah. So I think um, what what voters would have to do is essentially weigh um, their association with and the political and economic ramifications of endorsing a candidate who would be associated with these kinds of issues, something that would be deeply offending to one's personal beliefs and moral values, and weigh that against what potential economic and social benefits that person could achieve by virtue of um, implementing policies that might be beneficial to the economy as a whole in the medium and long term. So this is a, this is a difficult moral exercise, I think, for voters. And we have to think about it from both an empirical and moral lens. And I think we'll be doing that later on in the discussion. So mm-hmm. I think let's just start and see where we go with this. Sure. So um, we're all familiar with this idea propagated by philosophers such as Brennan and Komoski. This is the idea of expressivist voting. So what this means uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with these um, philosophers is that essentially... The ethics of voting are surrounded by expressing yourself. So what this means is that citizens don't vote in order to influence elections. Rather, they vote in a manner that expresses themselves. They vote to signal their association or their disassociation with certain people or certain groups, with certain ideas or certain policies. So, for example, someone may vote for the Labour Party to signal their support for Labour's connection to... Um, freedom and justice and equality, or someone might vote for the Conservative Party for to signal their support for the ideals behind this Conservative Party, not necessarily for their policies or what they'll do if they are elected. So just right off the bat, Michael, does this seem like a very compelling view of voting? Is this realistic? I think it's important, like, if you take the view that um, voting is an activity of consumption not necessarily like a productive activity so essentially going back to the idea that you 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 spoke about regarding the fact that you sort of like it's it's more of to express myself and what my personal views are as opposed to actually influencing the influencing the outcome of the voting itself because the voting is effective of what you stand for therefore if the party represents something you also represent or support it by voting for them it's sort of like um that idea that you show support for a particular sports team even though nothing you do will influence the, the team actually winning. It's just more of expressing yourself in that sense. And I think the issue, a large issue comes in due to like perceptions of what the vote actually expresses. So essentially, what the individual sees as expression through my vote differs from person to person. So essentially, like you said, you might vote Labour because of certain reasons, but for me, my vote for Labour expresses something else that I feel is equally as important. So it's impossible to, to, to truly determine what the vote expresses on like a larger scale. I think, so in sort of looking at the expressivist theory, I guess I could sort of agree in the sense where because your vote is so minute, it doesn't really, it it's easier to see it as a way of expression, as as a 
as opposed to seeing it as a way of influencing the the outcome itself. I think also um, we have to keep in mind um, what the empiricism points to, and I think Brennan and Lomansky point to the fact that voters in general don't have a good idea of what the policies of the candidate or the party they're voting for has. And I guess this points to the fact that people aren't voting with a good rational understanding of okay, this is a policy I agree with, therefore I shall vote for this person. What they're agreeing with is that sentiment that that particular party brings out. So um, I think what he uh, Brennan points to, for example, is um, someone might vote Democrat to signal the fact that they're compassionate or fair, uh, or they uh, vote Republican because they want to think, they want to signal the fact that they're responsible, moral and tough. So is this juxtaposition between the moral ideologies or the moral leanings that the particular party encompasses and, and, and represents. And that's what people identify with and therefore vote with. So I think that's the thing that fuels um, voting, or at least that's what the expressivist ethics model seems to point to. There's a lot of empiricism supporting that claim. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, that seems to be the case that there's at least an element of expressivist ethics in relation to voting. I don't think it's entirely the case because I think it's fair to say that voters do care at least somewhat about policy. Maybe they don't read the actual policy bills themselves, but they care about what they perceive to be the policy of certain candidates. And I think this affects, you know, where people line up on the political spectrum. So I think it's fair to say that there are lanes within politics in the sense that voters who are Democrats there are different groups within um, the Democratic Party based on policy, not based on expression. So, for example, somebody who may support someone very left-leaning, such as Bernie Sanders, they're likely to have different policy positions than somebody who supports someone more to the right, such as Joe Biden. So uh, wouldn't you both agree that, at the very most, um, expression is only uh, an element of one's voting power, not necessarily the entire determinant. Right. I, and I don't think that's wrong. Certainly, that expressi- expressivism is an, merely an element. But in the nature of two-party systems, naturally, what will happen is eventually, I mean, if you look at the presidential election, for example, you're going to filter down to one candidate as opposed to the other so at that point, it doesn't necessarily become an issue of uh, policy, but I think the expressivism or the idea of what that party or that individual represents as a moral leaning is what people would find themselves aligning themselves to. Um, but you're right in the sense that people are paying attention to policy. So I think one of the reasons why there were a lot of uh, labor swing votes uh, beyond just the fact that Jeremy Corbyn has an association of anti-Semitism is the fact that Labour didn't propose a model for Brexit, which is something that was seen as very problematic as opposed to the Conservative model, which was get Brexit done, right? And they were able to um, use that and uh, that, that certainty that the Conservatives posed was certainly a, a favour that, I mean, a, a factor that lent itself to people in the middle ground and helped swing those votes that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. And if we want to tie this more into the thought experiment... Voting based on expressivist ethics view would seem to ensure that no matter what, you wouldn't vote for the racist. Isn't that correct? In the sense that expressing your support for someone who is racist, despite how great their policies are, 
is always morally unjustifiable. Would you guys agree, at least from the expressivist view, that that would be the case? Right. I I think that that seems like a like a like a fair assertion to make, but it also depends on the kind of moral leanings that one subscribes to. Mm-hmm. So, I think normally the ordinary voter who is doesn't have racist leanings or anti-religious leanings in some way would vote naturally in favour with someone who isn't um, quote-unquote racist or at least anti-Semitic in the case of Jeremy Corbyn. But I think it also depends on whether the voter is more utilitarian-leaning or someone who believes in a more deontological framework. So, I mean, if someone thinks that what they want to maximise is overall good, and the policies that the particular candidate, so say uh, in our thought experiment, candidate Andy is expressing, is not necessarily racist or overtly racist, then I don't think it's a sufficient barrier such that some people might think that the benefits outweigh the costs and therefore would vote for candidate A. Uh, I think this also sort of like the idea of utility leans uh, more towards the epistemic voting ethics that Brendan brings up. So essentially, the idea behind that is voters should vote on what they perceive to be the best outcome for the governed, like the whole. So essentially, the greater good and make decisions in an informed and rational way. I think the last part lends itself to a bit, uh, might be a little bit warped due to misinformation and political leanings and in terms of uh, policy making. But so essentially, the large, um, Brennan brings up the example of, say, for example, there's a hundred man firing squad killing who's going to shoot a little girl. Right. All the bullets are going to hit at the same time. So even if you're the 101st person, it would not make a difference if you fired or not. Right. So, but due to people, a, a large number of people's moral code, many would, it would be fair to assume that many would stay away from actually firing that shot, which essentially brings itself to the sort of the principle of keeping your hands clean. Right. But then also, this also brings up the issue of abstaining. Right. So by abstaining, are you really not part of those who are participating in a collectively harmful activity? Like, is it fair for you to say that just because I didn't fire the shot, I had nothing to do with the girl's death? Wouldn't it be more fair to say in terms of like moral ethics that it, for an issue of morality, that instead of simply abstaining from it, you should actively try and stop the hundred people from firing that shot and killing the girl? Uh, what do you guys think? I think that's fair, and I think that's straying from the scope a little bit, but I think it relates um, to the topic of voting in the sense that he brings up that in some cases people still have a moral duty to vote for certain things, even if that certain thing doesn't have much of a chance of winning. So I think this seems to make sense, at least on um, first thinking about it, because if um, in the epistemic view people do have a duty of care to greater society, it would seem that um, voting for someone that would harm greater society is always wrong. However, this seems to me to be sort of straying into the expressivist view a little bit, because it seems to me that are you really acting on a duty of care to society if you vote for somebody that you know will lose? Not really. Rather, at least I think, you're just expressing that you're on the side of greater society. So I I think that is a little problematic um, in the sense that I think both of his um, views of ethical voting are, 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 are linked 
to such a degree that um, they're not fundamentally different. What what do you guys think? Right. Um, so essentially, I, I I want to bring this a, like a, one step further, which is essentially to say that say for example, person B Bob, right? He's not a bigot, but his you know that for example his economic policy would cripple the nation. So if we accept that not voting for the bigot is not enough, and that you have to actively vote against him. So essentially, this would lead you to vote for Bob, the other politician, with this horrible economic policy that will cripple the nation. And so, epistemic voting would dictate that you vote for the greater good, not just for yourself, but for everyone, which would lead you to vote for the bigot, because the bigot is only discriminating against a minority, a minority in which, um, in the nation itself. So, casting the vote for the morally righteous person who has a horrible economic policy would harm a great like a, a great a greater proportion of the nation itself so i guess by that logic you should it's it sort of lends itself to a view that you should vote for the bigot it's sort of subjective yeah. right yeah i i think at least it seems to me that brennan's view of epistemic ethics is in reality a utilitarian view and it seems just to be disguised by this 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 name epistemic, because in reality, how do you determine um, what is best for everyone? You determine it most likely based on utility. Yeah. So it seems in reality, at least to me, that epistemic ethics is fundamentally premised on um, using a subjective utilitarian determination of what is um, the best for everyone governed. So that in and of itself seems to be problematic because it seems like it could excuse, you know, really horrible things. Even if we were to extend it from um, racism, let's say the person running would benefit the most people, would provide you know, the best things for the most people, but he would murder 10% of the population. One could argue that, based on utility, it, it wouldn't be preferable, but one could also argue the opposite just as easily. So it seems to me very problematic. I think um, Ibrahim pointed out a possible result of epistemic voting, which is which would arise if people stuck to something called act utilitarianism. So the idea that you seek to maximize utility at all costs. But... Um, what I realize is that there's also rule utilitarianism that you could subscribe to because you think that would lead to a better outcome. Uh, and so that would sort of mitigate the concern. So if someone were to enact racist policies, then they would not be elected. But I think um, if you knew that someone was going to be a, to be racist, like their personal their personal beliefs are racist, but they're not going to implement any racist policies, then I think there's still scope for you to say it would be beneficial to vote that person into power if the alternative is poor economic and social policy. Just to go back, like, I think for our viewers, would, would you mind just going into sort of like a bit of the details of what the difference between rule utilitarianism and act utilitarianism is? Right, so I think uh, rule utilitarianism is slightly different from act utilitarianism. So act utilitarianism is with every single action that you do, you're seeking to maximize utility out of every single action that you do. So there's no overarching rule on how you should act. In every scenario, you merely look at what would bring the greatest benefit to society as a whole. 
Whereas with rule utilitarianism, you're looking at implementing a particular rule and seeing whether that rule or an alternative rule would uh, maximize utility, utility in general. So, so if we were to apply both of these views we've just talked about, it at least seems to me that an expressivist view would lead a voter to vote for the candidate which he disagrees with most of their policies. And an epistemic view would lead to the exact opposite result in that it would be morally unjustifiable to vote for, you know, um, somebody who doesn't um, portray the interests of greater society. So fundamentally, would it be fair to say that these two um, views on voting ethics uh, are contradictory in that you cannot subscribe to both of them? Right. I think one thing about both the expressivist ethics of voting and the epistemic ethics is that it's a description rather than an than a moral theory that you subscribe to so the expressivism model is one of describing how voters naturally vote and i think it applies to most individuals because most individuals won't be fully antiquated with the different ideas and policies that parties are suggesting or that individual candidates are suggesting whereas um with epistemic the epistemic model I think the more you learn about someone's policies, the more able you are to evaluate it. And so the, I guess then what I'd say is it's sort of on a continu- on a continuum. So you start, I mean, if you know nothing, the what you'd probably do is you'd vote with someone that you think has the greatest moral leanings with you. But as you learn more and more about someone's policies, the more likely you are to subscribe to this epistemic model meaning you'd be able to better evaluate the good and bad of each policy and then make a more informed decision so i don't think those two things are contradictory it really depends on what the individual knows and what the individual thinks he or she knows and then making a decision off of that Mm -hmm. but at least fundamentally it appears that for most people you wouldn't you couldn't combine the two to make a decision. Wouldn't that be fair? In that um, it would be very difficult for somebody to express something if that expression of what you know they think is counter to the collective interest. Yeah, I think I, I think it's it, yeah like it's sort of it's it, it's almost impossible unless your the way you express is also in line with what the greater good is so the ideals that you want to express through expressivist voting is exactly in line with what the greater good is but i think that's that's very highly unlikely unless the expression that you have fundamentally changes the your view of the collective interests and and what i mean by that is if you believe the qualities of honesty, for example, is super imp- is, is uh, that quality is super important, then that would obviously affect how you determine what the collective interest is. Mm-hmm. So this again relates to the idea of subjectivity and how in reality, um, it seems mm-hmm. impossible for a voter to vote on such an objective basis which epistemic ethics seems to at least propagate somewhat i think the also the issue of epistemic voting brings in the idea of like i mentioned before an informed and rational way of voting and i think for general voters it's hard to it's very difficult for me to assume like to assume that 
everyone has perfect information and you would know exactly you know exactly what would happen in any sort of policy outcome because it's very hard to see something with foresight if you don't have the prerequisite economic or policy making knowledge I think one potential reasoning as I mean one potential way to sort of commentate those views is um, if we consider the situation where it's clear that one candidate is more likely than the other to win so let's hypothetically put up uh, candidate ND A is far more likely to win than candidate B and what's candidate B's Bob. name? Bob, Bob yeah. right okay so let's let's say candidate A I mean ND is more likely to win than Bob okay so that you know that for a fact um, and I think what we can do is bring in this idea of voting to change the mandate. So when you already know that a person is going to win, um, or is very likely to win, would you vote for that person in order to extend his mandate? So meaning extend the margin by which he wins, or would you vote for the other candidate? So say, although you disagree, although you think that A is generally good for society, you want to vote for B because he represents a morally upstanding character that you want to endorse. And um, let's say I decide to vote for B, Do you, whether that would change the mandate that the politician, that candidate A receives, and whether that would change the sort of policies that he enacts. What do you guys think? I think this relates very well to the idea of reluctant labor voters, an idea recently propagated by Professor Williams. Um, and this idea is essentially that a lot of labor voters, um, and his, this is not based on empiricism, rather more based intuitively, but he believed that a lot of labor voters thought, okay, Jeremy Corbyn is probably anti-Semitic. The evidence seems to point at that. And although I think anti-Semitism is a terrible thing, I'm still okay with voting for him reluctantly because um, I think his policies are, are better. And not only that, that these individuals think that they can somehow contribute to ameliorating the situation for people affected by this anti-Semitism. So what I mean is that these reluctant labor voters would be comfortable voting for labor despite anti-Semitism, and then on an individual basis, they'll engage in action to try and prevent this anti-Semitism, whether that is going to labor party meetings and um, advocating against anti-Semitism, or protesting um, if the government tries to do something anti-Semitic. But is this really morally justifiable, do you think? I, I don't know about, not so much the issue of morality, but it's, it's more of an issue of effect. So say, for example, you bring it back to extend, extending his mandate. You vote for this person, he has a larger margin, he has technically more power due to the, due to the way the votes fell. And so then you have to sort of weigh the actions of an individual protesting somebody who's enacting, uh, say for example, a racist policy, and how the actions of the individual can change the actions of the person in power. And I think that inherent power imbalance sort of lends itself to the view that you probably, it probably wouldn't be as justifiable to, to vote in that way. And it seems very difficult, at least from my perspective, to be able to say, oh, I disagree with racism, I disagree with anti-Semitism, but I'm still okay affirming it by voting for it and then saying after the fact that I'll do something about it. In and of itself, voting for a candidate, expressing your support for a candidate like that, seems to me at least to be um, fundamentally unjustifiable. 
Right, and I, I think I'd agree uh, with Abraham, but not necessarily for the reasons that he mentioned. So I think it's a matter of quantifying the good that you can, you can sort of derive. So obviously, being uh, as having someone in power who's racist isn't a good thing, right? And it's about seeing whether or not your actions can play a difference in terms of... So if you think that his policies are so good that it outweighs the racism that he seems to propagate or the anti-Semitism in Jeremy Corbyn's case, um, then you might be willing to vote. But let's say it doesn't and you think that your actions can outweigh, then I think it's still justifiable. But the reality is that individual voters have little power over what they can do to sway. And I mean, we've seen this historically. The fact that... uh, the Jewish labor movement, who has been supporting labor for over 100 years, has now stepped away from supporting Jeremy Corbyn just before the election, points to the fact that there's little you can do, even with strong institutional bodies that are participating in and trying to propagate change. So in reality, would you agree that there's few situations where it would be justifiable to vote for this discriminatory candidate because uh, it is unlikely that you could affect the policy positions or the feelings this person has after the fact. Yeah, I I think I would generally agree with that. Mm-hmm. But I think moving the conversation back to changing the mandate. So um, we want to think about whether or not if you're very sure that someone is going to win, whether voting for that candidate would be beneficial or you think to take a moral stance by voting for the losing candidate would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were discussing that a bit earlier, and I want to want I want to find out what you guys think exactly about uh, whether which which leading which way is right. Basically, voting for candidate A, who already has a majority, is likely to win, or voting for candidate B, who is not racist, but who is very unlikely to win. It seems a little silly to vote for someone you're sure you won't that that they won't win. But if the alternative is voting for someone who. Um, has beliefs that you despise, it also seems a little silly to vote for them. So perhaps there's a third option in not voting at all, and perhaps that in and of itself is an expression of your views on both candidates. So I think I'd, I'd probably vote for the, for, I wouldn't vote, I mean, what do you I, think, I, I Michael? Think personally, for me at least, it would make more sense for me to sort of uh, vote against the mandate to sort of close, close the gap a little bit, because I think it lends itself to that idea that collective, like, the collective idea that even if me as, like, me as an individual, I don't make a large difference, if we subscribe to the expressivist theory, then in expressing myself, voting against the person who I perceive to be a bigot would in and of itself be something that is morally important to me. So in that sense, I think being able to express that is more important than just abstaining. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we should move the conversation to what I think the traditional view is. And what I, I mean by that is that self-interest drives voters. So it's the idea that voters vote what, for what is best for them. And I think many people think this is the case, and this is how many people um, vote in reality, because people are individually given one vote. So why isn't it morally justifiable for them to make the determination on their own self-interest um, to vote for um, what, whatever they, they want to vote for? Or is it morally justifiable? I think um, st- uh, as a starting proposition, we think it is justifiable because the purpose of voting is to kind of get a majoritarian consensus on what 
the country wants, meaning what each individual voter wants. So if I, for example, want a more liberal economy, then I'd vote for a candidate that represents that more liberal economy. And if it's clear that a majority wants it, then we shall implement that policy or we shall elect someone who would implement that policy. So that's, I think, the normative legitimacy that uh, for for self-interest or self-interested voting in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think, oh, oh, would you both think that in most cases people actually in reality do vote based on self-interest or do they vote on these greater ideas of either collective good or expressing themselves or maybe something else that we haven't touched on? I think... Um, the, 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 the starting proposition I laid out earlier is a good starting point, but we must also recognize what the reality of voting is. And it is that most states don't have a compulsory voting system, so actual voter participation is lower than 100%, right? I mean, in most states, it's probably 60 to 70%. Um, so from that point of view, it doesn't seem fair anymore, or it doesn't seem as fair as it otherwise would be if there was full voter participation to vote only in your self-interest because your vote counts not only for your view, but it also would influence policies that will affect a minority of individuals that aren't counter in that voting consensus. So I think uh, from that point of view, you'd have to consider the greater good to at least some extent. But I think that weighing proposition is a bit difficult to do, is it not? I, I sort of think it's my own personal belief that voters tend to vote based on self-interest because as a general view, most of the time what happens is if it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. If there's nothing really large that you disagree with in terms of policy making, then you would simply just vote for the person you've always been voting for as sort of a little bit of expression, but more of how it affects you as a person. So say, for example, you're in like a you're in a higher income bracket. So the the person, the politi- a politician who's running says, you know, I'll tax, like less taxes for the rich. You would probably vote for them because it's m- more in your self-interest to, to allow that to propagate sort of like your power in society. So I think that that might be a very big factor in terms of how people vote. Mm-hmm. I want to go back for a second to what Harish was just talking about, about the idea that... Um, people may have some responsibility to reflect the interests of people who don't go out to vote. But extending this idea of self-interest, wouldn't it maybe be the opposite case? Because if people can't be bothered to go out and vote, specifically in places where it's easy to vote, it's easy to register to vote, um, then maybe they don't deserve to have their interests reflected if they can't even take the time out of their day to go and go and vote. So perhaps there isn't a responsibility on these people who, you know, actually follow through on their responsibility right that seems like a i think that's a very powerful argument to make and i'd agree that if the circumstances were such that uh, voting was easy and accessible then people should go out and vote shouldn't they but the reality is a lot of people especially people who are in uh, jobs that they are holding down where there's no ability for them to go and take time off to vote there might be concerns as to whether they're even able to vote in the first place, whether they're able to exercise that freedom to vote. And in those situations, then I think there's justification to move to, 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 move to an idea of taking into account people who aren't voting as well as the greater good. So it, that becomes like a fact-specific inquiry, right? So depending on the state. So I think um, 
for example, in Australia, there's a voting always happens on a Saturday, is it, if I'm not wrong. And um, it's also compulsory voting, of course, so the system's slightly different. But the idea is you're encouraged to vote and you're given all the means possible to vote. Mm-hmm. So that makes it easier. But I think in circumstances where we're looking at what an individual should do, they should take into account these uh, like the particular circumstances that they find themselves in and vote according to what that democracy allows. So if the demo- if if that system is such that there are people, vulnerable people especially, who can't vote, then we should take into account those interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, just adding on to Harsh's point, I think in the US, you re- like it's a requirement that you have a registered address to vote. So I think it's unfair for you to sort of say that if somebody can't vote, because like then say for example like homeless people, they don't have a registered address, they can't vote. So it's unfair for you to cut out and cut like so clean and say that people who don't show up to vote should not be deserving of you know consideration. Right, and playing off of that point, I think also we must keep in mind that. Uh, there are interests of people who aren't citizens who might have to be taken into account. So, for example, asylum seekers or immigrants, illegal or otherwise, right? They're still people. And those interests will not be reflected in the ballot box unless people take into account their needs. So, um, I mean, one could argue that the state doesn't actually have a responsibility to take care of people who aren't their citizens or permanent residents, right? But, uh, I mean... As a, as a moral duty, I think it's fair to say that you would want to take into account those interests as an individual voter. So I think that's something we could, we, we would agree with if it's fair to say that it's a moral duty for people to take into account wider interests in general. The right to vote is a very interesting topic, and I, I'm sure we can spend a long time discussing the merits of it. Maybe we will in another podcast. But just to finish up... Um, let's bring this back to reality, to the empirical lens. Did anti-Semitism influence the UK general election results in 2019? Do you guys have any thoughts? I'd say they did, because the Jewish community was something that was very big for, like, a a big supporter of the Labour Party, and when you look at how they lost uh, many of their strongholds, I think the, the the voting margins were very, very small. So I think you could argue that in that sense, and especially when you have like you know, like Jewish the Jewish labor movement leaders like Mike Katz coming out and saying that, blatantly saying that Jeremy Corbyn is not fit to be prime minister, I think it's very fair to say that that might have affected um, voters in a very large sense. Not just like the Jewish community, but people who were sympathetic with the Jewish community as well. So I think it's fair to say that it would have changed if he was, if he did not represent those views. Yeah, um, I think that factor certainly played into account. But I think the biggest swing was the fact that Brexit wasn't being done and there was no certainty for voters. So the fact that the Conservatives offered an option that was certain as opposed to Labour's option, which was to have a second referendum after negotiating a deal, threw a lot more uncertainty. And we know that businesses, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of incentive not to leave the EU because of the access to the single market. But the fact that certainty in itself is a valuable good is something that both voters and businesses would have played into and considered. So I think the fact that Labour didn't offer a, cert- a certain solution as opposed to the Conservatives really played was the major swinging vote. And that's why we see a lot of Labour strongholds moving to the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so it seems it seems that we agree that anti-Semitism on the part of Jeremy Corbyn may have influenced the election somewhat, but it most certainly was not a driving factor. I think the only empirical evidence I came across uh, when researching this was that high Jewish population um, constituencies, uh, the Labour Party did a lot worse than they have historically. So I think this would point to at least uh, the Jewish population reacting negatively to the anti-Semitism, unsurprisingly. But I don't think there's evidence that we've seen yet, at least, that um, the greater population really took this into account when deciding um, who to vote for. So just before um, we let things go, um, Michael, who would you vote for in this hypothetical situation? Or are you not sure? I, I don't think I could bring myself to vote for the bigot. I think that would just, like, it's not in it doesn't lend itself to the way I would express myself morally. So I don't think I, I, I think I would have to vote for the person who had no chance of winning anyway. Harish, what do you think? I think it really comes down to a utility weighing exercise. So if the person who is uh, racist is someone who is uh, expressing views that are problematic, but is not going to implement them in their policies, then I see no reason not to vote if that person is going to bring about net utility. But of course, you must keep in mind that we also have to consider whether the mere fact of voting someone who has racist tendencies or anti-religious tendencies would bring about greater harm. So I think on balance, if I were to measure utility up and decide that candidate A is better for, for the world as a, or for the nation as a whole, I would be inclined to do so, albeit reluctantly. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I'm not sure where I stand, really. I'm partly convinced by the utility argument in the sense that there could be greater harm um, caused by electing the non-racist, but at the same time, something pulls me towards me never wanting to vote for a racist, no matter the circumstances. So I'm not really sure. I think we'd have to look at a case-by-case basis in reality to make that determination. But let's leave things there. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Abe. And thank you, Harish. Thank you, Abe. Uh, A couple notes before we go. If you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a quick rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure you subscribe to our show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod, follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod, or like our page on Facebook also at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you for listening and you'll hear from us again soon.